0: We're planning to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050. How do we get there from here? Hello, I'm Anthony Day with a special edition of the Sustainable Futures Report for Friday the 22nd of January. I've put this question to a panel of experts. You'll find a full transcription of our discussion on the Sustainable Futures Report website. I've also added links to a number of articles on the topic. I'm sure this debate will run and run. Anyway, here's what the experts told me. Well, if we could make a start, then what I'd like to do is to invite each of you to introduce yourselves, and then we'll go forward to a discussion. So Nicola, would you like to kick off?
1: Sure. Um, my name's is Nicola Steen. Um I've um been working on trying to find solutions to climate change since the late 80s when I worked with the first person in the world to consider um CAP and trading carbon emissions as a solution to um to reducing to reducing emissions in the world. Um so that guy was Michael Grubb at Chatham House. Um I've since worked for um I was at Chatham House, then I, I did, I did study, went back and studied economics um at Birkbeck, I've worked representing the electricity generators through the 90s, um, helped design and instigate the first pan economy emissions trading scheme, um, the UK emissions trading scheme. We now got a UK emissions trading scheme take two as of about a week ago, and um Yeah, and then I worked for one of the biggest brokerage um, companies in the world, um, building the markets, the carbon markets. So I worked for CO2e.com through the 2000s. And recently, I've um, rejoined uh, a company that's trying to build those markets. Unfortunately, still, that still needs to be done. Um, But it's, um, you know, I feel it's a very valid thing to be doing. And I'm working for a company called Red Advisors.
0: Thank you very much, Nicola. Welcome to Alessandro. Thank you for joining us. We're we're just going round and introducing ourselves. So Alessandro, if you'd like to introduce yourself.
2: Sure. Um, My name is Alessandro Vitelli. I've been a reporter covering energy and carbon now for about 30 years. I um, work for myself. I'm a freelancer. I write about markets, I write about regulation and um, policy, and as well as that, the United Nations climate negotiations. Um, I focus on the European market at the moment, but uh, I do follow developments around the world. Thank you. Uh, Deirdre, Deirdre Lane, welcome.
3: So essentially, I'm fortunate to know Nicola and Alessandro for some time in the carbon markets. So essentially, my background in finance is establishing commodity trading exchanges. And when the carbon market started, we were super excited because those of us in the industry thought the carbon market would be a catalyst to change. In behaviour and finance greener regenerative practices in the background so um, when the markets kicked off we joined a group of women in carbon very excited professional financiers lawyers etc who really wanted to make a difference so just like every other market the market had its hiccups it had its uh, frauds it had its scandals and it's still taking over so Um, Currently, back in Ireland, when I returned, I was so horrified at such little action actually happening. So um, somebody likened it to a muffin, and on top of the muffin, you have not a cherry, but a tiny piece of Lego. So what we were doing was the icing on the top, and even that was wrong. So, you know, I'm very excited to see different ways that people currently are taking serious steps back to reimagine how the economy can look, to shift our mindset from a linear to a circular economy so i'm very much about empowering people to make our own choices and to to do greener regenerative actions in our own spend our own investments and different ways to do so so the movement i've set up having spoken to amina Mohammed, was uh, a very frank conversation it was like amina nothing's happening I, i'd like to do this and this and this and she went do it So we have a shamrock spring in Ireland and it's a green movement, empowering people to use their voice to make choices and empowering other groups and community groups to take action on greener steps.
0: Thank you very much. And Chris Goodall. Chris, please introduce yourself.
4: Yes. Hello, I'm Chris Goodall. I have less qualifications to be on this talk than anybody. I'm a writer uh, and business person in the energy transition field. Um, I've written six books, uh, mainly aimed at a general audience, not specifically at professionals. Um, In one of my last books, I wrote a chapter on why carbon taxation was an important feature of the attempt to get the world to move faster towards net zero.
0: Thank you very much. Well, what we want to discuss this afternoon, basically is how organizations has states get from the present state to net zero carbon emissions in 2050 and do we actually encourage individuals and organizations to change their behavior through a system of carbon trading or do we introduce subsidies or we, do we have penalties or do we have taxes which which way is the way forward i'm going to ask alessandro would you like to start on that point
2: it's my belief that um using carbon markets and dynamic pricing for carbon is a offers a price signal that generates the innovation required to get to low carbon technology if we look at what's been happening not necessarily directly in the carbon market but more in the allied fields like renewable energy um, Setting prices which disadvantage high carbon generation has developed or has triggered a massive investment in clean energy generation. And that is bearing fruit now in the form of rapid deployment worldwide. The cost of renewables has been driven down through its incorporation through a market mechanism, the power market, to a point whereby it competes without any subsidy anymore. So that, to me, suggests that market structures can be employed usefully to send strong price signals into new technologies. Chris, would you agree with that
4: approach? Um, Yes, I think uh, not only that, I'd add one comment to this, is that most of the major participants in the CO2, the greenhouse gas producing industries, also want to see a proper price on carbon so that their actions to move towards zero, um, net zero are not disadvantaged by the fact that they're competing against other operators who don't face similar imperatives. So an international, a global carbon price would be ideal, um, possibly something like a border taxation scheme such as the EU is contemplating, if that doesn't work.
0: Would you like to add to that, Nicola? Are people or, our, or governments actually doing these things are they taking steps sufficiently large steps in the right direction in your view
1: um well that's two different questions i think um governments i mean i thought it was great that the prime minister the uk prime minister boris johnson um said that we would um be going for at least 68 percent reduction on 1990 levels by the end of 2030 um that is an incredible statement um when you think about Mm. well we were in 1990 effectively you know when i started (laughs) up working on this that someone would say that is incredible or the amount of renewable energy that we have in the mix now um or the government's 10 point plan i mean the 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 two the two announcements are announcements and what's key is how are we going to get from where we are to there um so Yeah, it's wonderful to have. I really think it's great to have such announcements. You know, China's making announcements. We don't know yet what Biden, um, President Biden, forthcoming President Biden is going to say. Um, But, you know, commitments are great, but then you need action. So I think we are seeing leadership and, and, you know, the UK's um, got the presidency of the COP next year. So that's all great. Um, and so there's opportunity for making change, but then you've got to get down into the nitty gritty of it all. And I think um, it's interesting that Chris and Alessandra and I would agree that um, you know having a price for carbon is is a wonderful thing in that it's valuing, it's putting them. If we've got markets, we need a price on stuff that we value, and if we value the environment, then putting a price on carbon um, is a is is a way to help people in a effectively a capitalist economy um plan their business um and and value the environment so I think that that is good I I don't know if we'd agree necessarily from comments earlier on on what how we would think we could perhaps get to that that price but it's great that we agree on that and I would imagine well you can ask Deirdre if she agrees as well (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, uh, before I do that, I just want to take a step back and let's uh, assume that not everybody listening to this is fully aware of how it works. Let me explain how I think it works and you can you can tell me. So as far as I understand it, carbon credits are a permit to pollute and certain organisations, large polluters, industries and so on, are assigned an allowance of these permits by some sort of central body if they're highly efficient and they don't emit an awful lot then they'll have a surplus of these permits which they can sell to organizations which need them because their allowance is not enough for what they do Um, am i right so far
3: um
1: i think the issue is that you'd be right if you'd use the word allowance all the way through but you use the word allowance permit and credit Oh. And that's why so that I you know theoretically that's how it would work if the whole world was capped, but the whole world until now hasn't been capped, it's all changed about to change. Um, and so we had a cap system in the in the EU, and so what you described really is about the um European emissions trading scheme, and in that situation, effectively governments have devolved sort of in responsibility to hit a certain amount of our national targets to industry. And industry, yes, has had allowances. And then the rest of what you described is correct. I don't know if anyone else wants to take over and put in another angle to hear a different voice explaining other parts of the market.
0: Right, well, Alessandra has been blogging about the new scheme, which we're gonna have in the UK.
2: Yes, Um, I wanna make a point though, that uh, in your description, You were saying how industry is given permits to to pollute. Um, I think in, if you'd like the ultimate version of an emissions trading market, nobody would be given any permits for free. They would have to buy them. And that would properly and fully internalize the cost of environmental damage into a company's business model. By having to pay to pollute, they then are placing a value on being clean. And being and being zero carbon, and I think that's the the direction of travel long term. The EU um, has already said it's going to it's going to lower the free allocation of emissions allowances to industrial companies. The UK plan, I'm sure, will follow much the same trajectory, whereby gradually every year fewer and fewer free allowances are given out, forcing industrial companies to take on board the cost of what they're doing. And I think that is an important element of an emissions trading system.
0: Okay, Deirdre, if an organization needs more allowances than it's got, needs more than it can actually buy, then what happens? Is it penalized in some way? Presumably by the government, which is organizing the
3: whole scheme? It depends on the nature of the organization. Is it a state organization? Is it a a private organization? You know, there's different regulations and different trading systems for different organizations. There's voluntary organizations as well. But what I really would like to extend on Alessandro's concept is the price of things. So as a person within any organization before you procure any item, even an onion for the canteen at work, if you know the true price of that article, the carbon price, based on the staff that had to grow the onion, the person that had to deliver the onion to the shop, the person that had to bring the onion to the canteen, et cetera, If you actually could visualize, even on one simple item in the workplace or in your home, the true cost of that carbon. So then you could juxtapose the one that you've got in your garden or in your local farmer's market against the one that's been grown in the South of France, the South of Spain, from somebody who's suffering from climate injustice, who has been trafficked to Spain to grow these onions or whatever cheap product that we're importing. So we really need to know the true cost beyond carbon of our spend. So if we can break it down as consumers on an item to item basis, but not overload the brain, but just contemplate, what is the cost of my action in purchasing even an onion? And then peel back all those layers to get the true price of carbon, of purchasing that one good on the local marketplace versus something that's been flown in from wherever. I think we really need to take stock of not just the organization's role, but our own role in procuring of any item to make sure that it's a truly fair climate justice purchase.
0: Thank you. Well that's interesting. Um, I'm going to get a plug in for the next episode of the Sustainable Futures Report because it's an interview which I've just done with a representative from Avery Dennison, the labels company, talking about the smart labels which tracks a complete um, life cycle of a product and should incorporate all the things that you were talking about so that we can actually look probably by scanning the label and find what the history of it is and what the carbon footprint actually is. Now we've been talking about carbon markets and allowances and permits, and um, we've got to be careful which is which. But Chris, you were saying earlier that you think the taxation is really the way forward.
4: Yes, I'd argue for taxation against any form of allowance uh, cap and trade based system. I'm sorry, we're talking quite quite heavy jargon here, and I apologise if I've not completely with, with, withstood it, and perhaps the audience doesn't either. But taxation is—I believe in taxation because it is a simpler and less easy to manipulate way of ensuring a proper price on the cost of the things we do. So the core idea in a carbon taxation system is that anybody who is responsible for combusting something which results in CO two, um, such as the the, the, um, the use of oil in a car or um, gas in a in a in a power station, pays a price for each tonne of CO2 that's emitted to the atmosphere, perhaps $50, perhaps $100 or something like that. This is simpler. Uh, It it has many complexities because of course greenhouse gas emissions come from things that aren't necessarily the combustion of fuels, for example, the pouring of fertilizer onto soil. But I think those problems are small compared to the logistic problems of cap and trade schemes, permit schemes, Um, uh, which have been historically around the world manipulated by large producers to ensure that they get the allowances for free or cheaply compared to potential competitors. And therefore, it's anti-competitive, more difficult to enforce than a properly run carbon taxation scheme. And we should no doubt go on later to talk about the disadvantages of carbon taxation as well.
0: Now, who'd like to come back on that? Alessandro?
2: Yes, it's... um... It occurs to me though that the problem there, there's a fundamental problem with taxation in as much as you by taxing carbon emissions, you're guaranteeing government revenue, but you're not guaranteeing an environmental outcome. A taxation system doesn't put a cap on emissions and strive to achieve that cap or below it. Um, and the difficulty is, is, is that again, I mean, I I think taxation policy making is simply just as vulnerable. To outside interference uh, that Chris was in, in, implying, yeah. uh, as policy making in a carbon market would be, yeah. I industrial yeah. companies could do exactly the same sort of influence peddling uh, among policymakers to say, let's keep, let's have a little carve out of that tax for our, for our, my sector or my company or what have you. Um, yeah. What we're dealing with fundamentally here is a problem of uh, political will it's up to the regulators and the politicians behind the regulators to ensure that there is ambition in whatever system is put into place and to resist the efforts of industrials and other commercial interests to, to water down those, those that, that legislation and those regulations. That's a problem we suffer at every level of the environmental uh, challenge, not just uh, locally and or nationally when it comes to an ETS, but internationally at the United Nations when they're trying to craft Um, rules for international carbon trading that should have been put into place three years ago. So it's an endemic issue.
0: Okay. Would you like to add to that, Nicola?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's one of the the key issues for me is that the money is going to the government. It's not being kept in the market. Um, And the signal, it's very much a, a stick. You know, it's a punitive... It's seen as a punitive measure if you're in industry, if you've got to pay a tax, whereas trading by giving people an incentive to reduce their emissions and an opportunity to find um, processes and technologies that reduce emissions and therefore free up allowances to sell, it creates, it's more of a carrot, it's an incentivization. So the the, the mindset is different. And to date, you know, there might be flaws, as, as Alessandro said, in the market, but you know, to date, hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds has moved to clean technologies around the world and this incentivized people to make decisions based on clean technology, um, less emissions. And, um, you know, I, I know that myself, I've been involved in, in many of them. And the other point I would make is what level, you know, how do you know what level to put the tax at to get the desired results? So, we're not, as Alessandra pointed out, by having a tax, the result isn't, um, well, you, you don't know for sure, it's not certain at all that you'll hit any particular result, but even trying to hit a, a result, you know, what level do you put a price, the, the tax at? How do you decide that? The thing about a cap and trade system is that the cap is the driver, it's the environmental cap, and people work below that cap to meet the... Got environmental goal.
3: And there's no guarantee that the tax raise will actually be built, put to sustainable purposes or regenerative purposes?
1: Not at all, no, no. And even if they were hypothecated, as they say, the economic, you know, the economic word for it, so they're directed to sustainable um, um, products or green, clean growth, it doesn't mean um, that you necessarily got the people making the decisions you know they're going to be in the hands of the civil servants not in the market where people on a day-to-day basis are working on renewable energy or you know clean investments into buildings or something
0: yes i don't know whether you remember the carbon reduction commitment which was a british policy some time ago i was an expert in that field for a while. Um, but that was um, full of problems because it started off by saying that the, uh, the the most efficient companies would be paid a bonus out of the penalties levied on the least efficient companies. And before it actually was implemented, the Chancellor said, no, no, we'll take that money and we'll take it back into the Treasury. Uh, but it actually got more and more complicated and eventually the whole thing fell apart, as you may remember. But uh, regardless of what we do, whether we tax or whether we have a carbon market, is there not a risk that we will drive heavily polluting industries, and I'm thinking particularly of steelmaking and cement, that will drive them abroad to places which don't actually regulate emissions and then we won't have achieved anything?
4: Well, we've already done that to to some extent. Um, Yes, absolutely central problem. And that's why the, the European ideas of, putting a carbon border tax on things like, as you say, steel um, will, will have to be taken forward if we cannot get some form of global agreement. But I think the last year has shown that it ought to be possible to get some form of, of global agreement, um, although it's going to, of course, be incredibly complicated. Nicola talked about the difficulty of establishing a price. Um, now, what my work is, is partly about is trying to work out how much it costs to turn heavily carbon productive in producing industries such as steel making fertilizer, et cetera, into um, towards a technology that doesn't involve the combustion of fuels or the use of what the emission of carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases. And very, very roughly in general, that's somewhere between $50 and $100 a tonne. So $100 a tonne CO2 price would, in my opinion, almost certainly lead to very rapid decarbonisation of the major, the major product, major producing industries, and it's also a significant disincentive. For example, to the to the um, to cultivation and, and uh, eating of meat.
0: Nicola, you've got a point, and then Alessandro wants to pick something up. I think.
4: Yeah, but the margin
1: there is between fifty and hundred dollars, and as an academic, you know, as a, as a, an observer to look at economies when each company will have a different cost of abatement to talk about having a hundred dollar um tax when a fifty dollar tax might actually get the results we achieve when we're facing all the things we're facing in our economy and it's different in france and it's different in australia and india then you know you, we can't have that margin of error i'm you know my my team in, in redshaws we have a market update twice a day of what's going on and the price fluctuates, you know, that people are responding to loads of different signals all the time. And to have something as, um, I don't know what the word, I forgot my economic vocabulary, but it's sort of as, um, it's just a bit um, clunky really, That's I know that's not an economic term, but yeah um (laughs) you know um you you can't afford we we can't afford to be that
2: imprecise Um, another thing um that i wanted to just raise in conjunction with the idea of offshoring production due to high carbon costs is more and more countries are bringing a cost of carbon to bear upon their economies um in 2021 we'll see the uk's own little market starting up. Yes, but that's just continuing the EU ETS. In China, they're going to be launching, hopefully this year, their nationwide emissions trading system. Now it's not perfect. It's not a real cap on emissions, but it's a step in the direction. Latin American economies are doing the same thing. Um, more and more countries are seeing that a price on carbon actually could, you know, could be the way forward for them. And where those countries are not uh, making that effort, then you have the possibility to introduce a border carbon adjustment mechanism, as as Chris has I think alluded to. This is where you start forcing your export markets, so your your the markets from which you import rather, to account for their their cost of carbon, and where you do where, where you attempt to do something to bend down the curve of lifetime product emissions by trying to account for it in the the price that you pay or the price that your exporter pays for bringing product into your market, Um, And I think that's an important element of the conversation because since it's been taken up seriously by the European Union as an option for its green deal, the conversation has gone global and more and more countries are actually looking at this very seriously and beginning to say, well, how can I avoid having to pay a border carbon adjustment for my exports to the European Union? Well, perhaps we can do that by addressing it ourselves by having a price on carbon here at home. And once that's, that becomes implemented in an exporting country, then the rationale behind a border carbon adjustment just vanishes, as long as the, the, the cost is comparative, comparable. But I think that there, are, that there are ways in which the world is reacting and growing and developing towards a low carbon future that mean that maybe these last ditch measures uh, that the EU is considering and other countries are considering may not be required.
3: What I'm really appreciating currently is uh, the banker's responsibility in this field. So if you're financing a cold project or insuring a cold project, no matter what country it's in, people are reevaluating the climate risk, the, the human risk, the climate. It, it's, it's a minefield for investors to actually know what's the right thing and generate profits and incomes for the, the just transition that's happening in that country. But I think it's, it's a great shift in impact investment and responsible dollars spend to know exactly where your money's going to go we know the 1.5 degree raise that we're anticipating and by investing in a cement factory overseas you're still opening yourself to that risk as an investor so it's it's a challenge and i think it's we're in a good place to actually stop the shift of dirty polluting industry elsewhere
0: good this border carbon adjustment it's a phrase i've not heard of before um can we just uh, expand on it explain it for my my benefit?
2: Border carbon adjustment um, system would be a way of measuring the carbon contents of products being imported into a jurisdiction, say the EU, and requiring a tariff that corresponds to the market value of the carbon in that product to be paid by the country that is exporting to the EU. So that is a plan. It's not in place at the moment. It's a, no, it's not in place now. It's a plan that has been raised and is part of the Green Deal project. It's it's, it's it's one of the many, many pieces of legislation that has been scheduled by the EU for the next few years. So there is a definite intention to bring a border carbon adjustment into place to encourage, I think you might call it, encourage other economies to actively put a price on their carbon or to take steps to reduce carbon.
0: Well, I think we might now draw all this to a close. I'm going to ask each of you for a a closing thought, a closing statement. I think overall, the opinion is positive. I know if we look at the climate crisis, there are people who say it's all over, we'll be extinct within 10 years. And um, well, I don't subscribe to that view because I feel if you're that pessimistic, you never get out of bed. But um, putting all that into a, a carbon context, What are the future? Chris, would you like to give us some thoughts on that?
4: Well, we've raised, we've gone through a lot of very complicated issues and I appreciate that we've not had the chance to discuss some of the the difficulties of each of the proposals that might be on the table. Um, I take great heart from the fact that a large number of European fossil fuel emitters are actively looking for a form of carbon pricing. Let's not worry about exactly how it's constructed. In order to make, in order to justify to their shareholders, um, to make the making of, of the billion-trillion dollars investments that are going to be needed, and I, speaking personally, believe with all the disadvantages of modern capitalism, we absolutely need to use the financial firepower of the large fossil fuel companies and their major users, in order to move to um, what did called a just transition. And I think the simplest way of doing that is what, doing what they say, which is to apply a carbon taxation. Um, we discussed earlier what the right price might be for the for the carbon tax. I'm, I gave this general figure of 50 to 100. And the reason I did that is because it varies by industry. So we would need to know exactly what, what should apply. It'd be better to have one single price across the economy, but if necessary, we might have to put a different price on Ammonia production where there's a very low carbon tax required to steel where it looks as though it might be as high as 80 or 90 dollars at the moment.
0: Thank you. Deirdre, a just transition.
3: We have to open our eyes and see our own bias in this white faced conversation here and consider the advantages of a British colony in the space, taking all the, the finance from the coal industry and the industrial revolution and take stock of other countries that are now edging into their own industrial revolutions so carbon has been very much the backbone of the industry to generate the power in these countries and the wealth of these countries so we're now 2020 we have the technology we have the resources we know the science we have to get the message from the grassroots like the Greta Thunbergs of the world to the grass tops within these companies and the companies investing our pensions to go and take the right decisions, a greener decision, a cleaner decision, because we have polluted this atmosphere so much. And in fact, I'll share a fact with you. um, Just yesterday, I heard a podcast about trees. So the more carbon we have in the air, the more insects have harder shells and they're reproducing by 30% more because insects were on the planet before trees. So these insects will survive. The trees are having ash die back, et cetera. I'm actually from Kildare and our oak tree, Kildare means Church of the Oak. The oak will survive huge fluctuations in temperature changes, which we're seeing throughout the globe. But it's very interesting if we actually extrapolate the price of carbon on the effect of all the different biodiversity that we have on this little planet. And I think we have to have a deeper conversation within the scientists and the investment community and ourselves to see what's actually happening when this carbon is released? So beyond an economic conversation, to have a true conversation on what species is thriving and not thriving. So I'm optimistic on accountability of our policymakers makers and the, the voice of the people in making a difference.
0: Alessandro, are you optimistic?
2: I am. I, I think that there are a lot of very brilliant people involved in crafting our response and i've seen it over the past 15 16 years in 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 my, my my observations of the carbon market how solutions are found that always manage to improve the end product and i think that we've seen over the past four years here in europe um more of the same we've seen uh how events such as the, the, the growth and, and, and proliferation of US shale gas has lowered the cost of using low carbon gas to the point that coal has become marginalized. People have taken account of these price developments and their policy uh, making going forward takes that into account. You know, how do we, how do we deal with coal? It's fine. It's going by itself. We're just going to edge it towards the door. Um, what happens after that? We have people now talking about hydrogen in Europe, people crafting policies to to, to uh, use hydrogen as an industrial fuel and a, proce- and a process uh, element that would render it, if it's made properly, completely carbon de- uh, neutral. So there are many fine mines working who've employed not just the market structure, but the policy structure in Europe to combine it to driving us to a higher ambition here in Europe as evidenced by the new 55% target.
0: Thank you. Nicola, the future.
1: Uh, I'm an optimist. Um, I would like perhaps to use some different words for some of the the, um, things we've been describing. Um, I would suggest that um, like Alessandro, you know, we know, I mean, we've known each other quite a while and and Deirdre as well. but we know hundreds of people are on a networking event, actually, where, um, you know, people come together. There's hundreds and hundreds of people who have been, what, thousands now, who've been working um, on clean, sustainable development um, solutions for decades. And um, I would suggest that what we need to do is to harness all those brains, all that energy um, to, you know, the the... The knowledge and the creativity um, and the practicality that's within that community and it's almost a democratization of finding um, a solution you know the same people who are industrialists or financiers um, also have family and friends and communities um, and so I would suggest rather than saying well it's a market mechanism um, versus um, a public mechanism of a, of a taxation, that I would say, um, you know, let the people um, work together, let us um, come together and find great solutions, rather than have a top-down um, solution imposed. It, it's just, we haven't got time. We need to harness everything that we've got and all the different solutions that we have, and we need to work with government um, to to change trajectories, even further than they've been changed already.
0: Well, thank you, and very many thanks to all my guests today, Nicola Steen, Chris Goodall, Deirdre Lane and Alessandro Vitelli. Thank you all. And thank you too for listening. Thanks in particular to my patrons for your continuing support, which allows me to finance transcriptions like these, as well as paying for the hosting costs of the Sustainable Futures Report. Back to normal, well, back to a normal schedule from the 1st of February which is the date for the next edition of the Sustainable Futures Report. I'll be looking at coal from Australia, where it ends up and why. Also fish. I've just read What a Fish Knows by Jonathan Bolcombe. I'm no vegetarian but after reading it I really don't want to eat any more fish. As the lockdown goes on, stay safe, stay strong. We have never experienced anything like this before. It's clear it's affecting some groups far more seriously than others. We need to pressure governments to change that, and above all, to prevent them from thinking that austerity will be the ultimate solution. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. Until next time.